I said last week that I had some reservations about this book that we're using for this series, Questions Jesus Asked by Magreta Vega. My, my reservation last week was that chapter 2 and chapter 3 seemed to be about the same question. I hope I cleared that up for you at least a little bit. My reservation for this week is that the question De Vega addresses in the book is not really the question that Jesus asked. The title for this week is, What Do You Live For? But that was not the question posed by Jesus. Here are the two questions that Jesus asked in today's Bible reading, which we just heard. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Neither of those questions exactly translates to what do you live for? I understand what the author is getting at, though. Jesus is challenging people's values. He's questioning their priorities. But the concern that Jesus is driving at here is not what is most important to you in life. Rather, Jesus wants us to confront the question of whether there is anything we value more than life itself. Is there anything in this world that is so important to you that you would give up your soul to pursue it? One of my guilty pleasures is watching the TV show Impractical Jokers. Just me? If you're not familiar with the show, it's about a group of friends who challenge each other to perform terribly embarrassing tasks in public, and they keep score based on who can or can't complete their challenges, and then at the end of each episode, the loser gets punished by some humiliating test that they're not allowed to say no to. In a recent episode, one of the jokers, Sal, who is a huge fan of basketball sneakers, was being punished. He was given new, brand new, very rare, very expensive basketball sneakers. And then he had to choose whether he would allow his new sneakers to be damaged in some way or whether he would allow something else to happen to protect the shoes. For example, he had to choose whether he would let his friends pour a bottle of red wine over the shoes or whether he would let them pour that bottle of red wine over his mom's head. His mom got doused in wine. One of the other choices, and this is the reason that I bring it up in this sermon, one of his choices was whether he would allow his friends to cut the soles out of the shoes or whether he would sell his soul to one of the other jokers. Again, he, he chose to protect the shoes and he sold his soul to his friend Myrrh. He, he willingly signed a contract stating that his friend now owns his immortal soul. He marked it with his blood. He had it notarized by a notary public, all to protect a pair of shoes. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Apparently for some it takes far less than the whole world. For some it takes merely a pair of basketball shoes. It's kind of a silly example, I know. I'm sure that Sal didn't believe that he was actually forfeiting his eternal soul. But that's kind of the point Jesus is making, isn't it? A lot of the things that we do mindlessly... A lot of the things that we pursue in this life, even commit ourselves to with a passion, is it possible that some of these things could lead us into forfeiting our souls without us even realizing it? 
Sometimes we joke about it. You're going to you know where for that. Usually when we say things like that, it really is a joke. We know that we are not condemned by God for every little mistake or for an honest error in judgment. We know that the grace of Christ washes away all sin, that it is upon Christ alone and not our own perfection that we rely for our eternal security. But still, we need to be aware when we are making choices of the choice that we are making. We need to be mindful in setting our priorities of what those priorities reflect. We need to be conscious of what we are pursuing and where those pursuits will ultimately lead. I love the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. We heard uh, some of it this morning. It's a book of wisdom literature. It's not history, it's not law, it's not prophecy or ritual. It's, it's simply a man in his later years of life looking back and reflecting on the meaning of it all. The book is traditionally ascribed to King Solomon. Whether it was written by Solomon or not, it was definitely written by someone with great wisdom, someone of tremendous prestige and wealth, someone who had the luxury of pursuing whatever inclination his heart desired, and he tried them all. Through all of his pursuits, the author was trying to, to find some lasting purpose in life. He went after wisdom, he went after wealth, he relished rich foods, he pursued sensual pleasures, he threw himself into work, he enjoyed his leisure, None of it brought any real meaning. All of it turned out to be fleeting. None of it gave his life the purpose that he wanted because none of it would last. Vanity of vanity, he writes. All is vanity. Some people consider Ecclesiastes to be a depressing book. Maybe that's why I like it. I don't know. But it's considered depressing because all of his pursuits lead nowhere. It appears that for all of his wisdom, and, and through all of his experiences, the author failed to find meaning in life. That's not really the point of the book, though. If you read Ecclesiastes closely, you, you find that he uses this expression over and over again, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is important. It means in this physical, temporal, finite world in which we live, he could find nothing of lasting value. He could find nothing which would give his life ultimate, eternal value under the sun. And isn't that exactly the same point that Jesus makes? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If your answer to that is anything of this world... If you are looking to anything but heaven or anyone but God to give your life lasting purpose, if you're trading your soul for anything at all under the sun, then you've made a bad deal. That's why I don't think the question, what do you live for, quite captures the point. There are lots of things that I live for, many things that give my life meaning in the here and now. My family, my friends, my church, my home, all of these are things that I enjoy that matter to me greatly. I love to eat good food and lots of it. I enjoy the challenge of trying to run it off. 
I've been chasing financial security for quite some time, and I might get there someday. Traveling to new places, sitting in the beauty of nature, reading a good book, all of these things bring me joy and feed my soul. If you ask me, what do you live for? On one level, the answer is all of these. All of these things help to give my life meaning. But if you ask me, for which of these are you willing to give up eternal life? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? If you say, for which of these will you trade your soul? Well, the answer to that is none of them. At least I hope the answer is none of them. I don't want to sacrifice my soul. I'm not willing to trade on my eternal life with God for any of these temporal blessings. The point that Jesus is making with these questions, the the point that the Bible makes through and through, the point that our faith has emphasized all along, is that there is nothing of more value to us than eternal life. There is no place more permanent than heaven. There is no one more important than God. There is nothing in this life more significant than our faith in Jesus Christ, through whom we have a place with God forever. Without that, there is no meaning to life. Because without that, everything else passes away. So don't sacrifice your faith for anything. At the end of last week's passage, Jesus said, seek God's kingdom and these will be added to you. Meaning, the things of this world that we get so focused on and so worried about. If we pursue God's kingdom first, the rest will be taken care of. In this week's reading, Jesus says, if instead you focus on those other things and you do so to the detriment of God's kingdom, then you are forfeiting the whole kit and caboodle. The context of these questions within Mark's gospel should not go unnoticed. This teaching of Jesus from the end of Mark chapter 8 takes place immediately following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. We heard that story at the beginning of this series when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter gave the right answer, you are the Christ. But that declaration by Peter was not the end of the scene. Immediately after Jesus was revealed as the Christ, as soon as the disciples professed their belief that that was the truth of the matter, it was at that precise moment that Jesus began to teach about the cross. Mark 8, 31 to 33, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Nowhere before in the Gospel of Mark had there been any mention of the cross. Nowhere prior to this moment had there been any suggestion of pain or any hint of suffering It was only after the disciples had committed themselves to the truth that Jesus is the one that Jesus began to teach them what was to come. It was only then that he began to speak of the cross. Our reading for today is is the conclusion of that same scene. 
Now, several weeks ago, I mentioned that this scene is the climax of Mark's gospel. The story sits right in the middle of the gospel. Everything in the first half leads up to Peter's dramatic confession. Everything in the second half plays out what that will mean. McGray de Vega has an interesting way of describing it. Putting the gospel in the context of a play, he says that this scene is the act one finale. All of the action of the first act, leading up to the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, and then suddenly the dramatic introduction of the cross, and the ominous statement of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And with that, the curtain falls. And we are left to ponder those words, to to ponder the introduction of this new twist, this idea that being with the Messiah will mean suffering and sacrifice, perhaps even death. This perfectly sets up the suspense and the foreshadowing of all that will take place in the second act of the story of Jesus. Suddenly the focus of the entire story is redefined and we find out what the story is really all about. The cross. The cross. Although our reading for today is a continuation of that same scene in which Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter made his confession, you are the Christ. There is one change in the staging before Jesus asked the next questions. There's an addition of the characters who are on stage. Remember that when Jesus and his disciples were talking about who Jesus is, it was just them, Jesus and the disciples. It was a private conversation. But not so with this part. Continuing the same story, our reading for today begins, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them. Jesus said this to all of them. To to the whole crowd, to everyone. No longer is this a private conversation. Jesus wants everyone to hear this part. Everyone in the whole production is brought out on stage for this moment. This is no longer a secret. These words are not for the select few. This is not a calling that's only for some. These words are for everyone to hear. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross. The way of the cross. This idea of making personal, deep-cutting sacrifices for the sake of Christ and the kingdom of God, this idea of putting one's very life on the line, it's not just for the apostles. It's for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. It's not just for the pastor to make sacrifices. It's not just the church staff that needs to listen up here. It's not the committee chairs and the lead volunteers that Jesus is talking to. This is for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. This is for everyone in this room, anyone watching online, even if this is your first time in a church service, Jesus is talking to you. And the reason that he calls the crowds around for this moment. The reason he wants everyone to hear this is because this is the meaning of it all. 
This is what it's all about. This is what it all comes down to. And when I say it, I mean everything. This is what life is all about. This is what faith is all about. This is the meaning of it all. The way of Jesus Christ. The way of the cross. Self-giving love. Sacrifice for the sake of the one who sacrificed himself for us. Eternal life in the name of the one who is life himself. This is where our souls find their true meaning. You could gain all of the power, prestige, and wealth of the entire world, but if you have not this, then you have nothing. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? De Vega does a good job of describing that word soul. In Greek, it's psyche, from which we get the words psychology and psychiatry. In modern Western culture, we, we think of the psyche in terms of the mind, how you think, what you believe. In the Greek of the New Testament, though, it meant a whole lot more than that. De Vega writes, we sometimes think of the soul as that part that continues existing after our bodies die, but that's not quite right. The Greek psyche means something deeper. It refers to the totality of our existence. The soul is deeper than just our brains and minds, our ability to think thoughts and use reason. It is deeper than our hearts and our emotions, our ability to feel and emote and relate to others. It is deeper than our gut, our instinct, our drive and our power. The soul is the source of all that it means to be alive. It is what God gave us the very moment God breathed into us at our creation, our souls are a gift from God. As the totality of our being, the soul defines life for us. That's why many English translations use the word life instead of soul. It's not something separate within us. It is our very life. As a gift from God, our life is defined in relation to God. If we are out of step with God, then our soul, our life, is in danger of being extinguished. If we are right with God, then our soul, our life, is secure and will go on with him forever. And the one distinguishing mark that determines whether we are right with God or not is the cross. That's what it all comes down to, the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is what makes us right with God. The cross of Jesus Christ is what gives life to our souls. But it's more than just believing in the cross upon which Christ was hung, it's about being willing to take up our own cross. It's our willingness to follow the way of the cross. It's our acceptance of life on Christ's terms that gives us life. If you are putting your own likes, your own desires, your own pursuits ahead of that, 
then you haven't quite got there yet. If you are setting your mind on the things of man, if you are betting your life on the things of this world rather than the things of God, then you are selling yourself short and you are selling your soul short. If you are looking for meaning in the things that bring pleasure in the moment, then you could be missing out on eternal joy. Don't sell out your soul. Don't trade your life for something that will not, cannot last. Jesus is the way. Christ is our life. Let us take up the cross and live for him. Let us find meaning and joy in him. Amen.